invest. All right, so I'm here with Lisa. Uh, she's the president and CEO of Genome Medical. Jenna, do you want to tell me a little bit about Genome Medical and what you're doing in, in, that's in the industry? Yeah, fantastic. So first, it's just a pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you for inviting me onto the podcast. Genome Medical is a leading telegenomics technology and services company. And our mission really is to, to democratize access to genomic-based medicine. So what that means is that genetics and genomics is um, one of the most exciting advancements in clinical care today. It allows us to better treat patients and get the right patient to the right therapy faster. And as part of that, um, there's a lot of disparities in who has access to genomic-based medicine today. So Genome Medical really is tackling those service delivery challenges and enabling genomics uh, as part of everyday healthcare for patients all over the country. So, so what I see is the problem is, you know, we're normally when we provide medicine to people, it's like this blanketed uh, kind of diagnostic treatment uh, of people uh, that that uh, isn't all that effective in most cases um, because you know patients may have genetic predispositions to certain medications so they may have negative reactions yeah so that's roughly right yeah I mean the way I think of it is we've developed a standard of care that actually works for the majority of the population it is based yeah. on you know good medicine good science however normal is not the population at large. And so if you could stratify the population and know that this is a group of people that are at elevated risk for cancer, you would treat them different. You would do much more active surveillance. You would do mammograms and MRIs and colonoscopies at an earlier age, and you would find cancer earlier, in which case it is highly treatable. And similarly, you could find a group of individuals that are at high risk for cardiovascular disease. And so you would similarly treat them differently and better and more appropriately for them. And then there's a group of people that have adverse reactions to drugs. And so if you could know in advance of administering the drug that that was not going to be a positive effect, you would prevent adverse drug response and in some cases you know hospitalization or even death and so it's using that more informed knowledge of our molecular makeup that allows us to provision care much more appropriately and more precisely to the individual yeah so i did this you, you can tell me if, if you feel this is right but and i think this is you're solving a huge problem here because uh, American Medical Association did uh, the Journal of American Medical Association did a study and they found that uh, I think this was in 1996 I believe they found that uh, 106,000 deaths were due to properly prescribed medications so which which is the fourth leading cause of death if that's the case right um, so third leading it is one of the number one factors that lands people in the emergency room unexpectedly, right? And so you think about just the cost savings potential, as well as obviously improved outcomes for those individuals, if you could avoid all that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the third leading cause of death is uh, medical errors. Fourth leading cause of death is properly prescribed medications. <laughs> properly prescribed. Properly prescribed medications, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's what I found and, uh, just based on my research. And so it's not that the allopathic healthcare system is, is in general a bad thing. It's more so 
we're not treating people right. And we're just, we're just basing medicine off statistics. Would you agree? Like, well, I would, I would, so I like to think of it that, you know, obviously we all have a genome. It's what makes us who we are. It is our life code. It literally programs, you know, our, our bodies, our phenotype, as well as response. Uh, in, and so at a, at a molecular level, we've just never had access to this information. And it's kind of crazy to think about. I always think of it as like, of course, there was a day in medicine where, you know, we didn't have a microscope, we didn't know how to do a blood draw, we didn't analyze anyone's blood to try to, you know, help administer medicine. Seems pretty rudimentary, given that it's sort of a core of how we think about practicing medicine today. And I think of this as the same way. Like, if you can't look at your cellular structure, you know, and your molecular makeup, like, you're just lacking this really important informative tool of how you would provision clinical care. And so in the future, we're going to look back at that and sort of similarly feel like, wow, we were practicing medicine in a really rudimentary way because we didn't have the knowledge that you know, we, we now have and that is increasingly coming into clinical care, but is still lagging. Why, why do you think this isn't available to a lot of people? Why do you feel like well, so one, the field has advanced rapidly. Um, we're seeing, you know, a rapid pace of discovery in terms of the science and that scientific discovery about what is causative of disease is really, you know, kind of the first step of advancement. And the second step of advancement has been the technology. So the ability to, you know, provide sequencing and the cost with which you provide sequencing is dropping dramatically. And so that combination has allowed us to then accelerate the, you know, the medicine side and better understand the benefits of genetics and genomics. And as that pace has um, accelerated, particularly over the last five years, it's been at just an incredible pace that the change in medical management guidelines are advancing, but it is hard for you know, the vastness of clinicians to be able to keep pace with that change. And we have specialists. Those specialists are geneticists and genetic counselors, but there are very few of them in the entire United States. We only have about 2,500 geneticists and about 4,500 genetic counselors. So you have this really small specialty area for a field that is just exploding. And ultimately it touches all areas of medicine. So that means you know, every primary care doctor, every you know, pediatrician, every oncologist, cardiologist, neurologist, they all need to advance their knowledge in genetics and genomics, but that takes time. And so the challenge has been, uh, you know, for clinicians to know which patients would benefit, what testing is needed and what to order, and then frankly, how to interpret the resulting information to guide and improve clinical care. It's yeah, this isn't taught in medical schools, right? This, uh, how, to, how to find, how to customize care to individuals, right? It's not really That's taught. Right. Yeah. So it really requires uh, an institutional change, right? It does. It, it, is a, um, it is one of the biggest advancements in clinical care that we will see in our generation. And that offers so much promise 
It is, it is truly an exciting future world that allow us to deliver better clinical care. And I believe at lower cost, because it just makes sense. If you can, you know, navigate the right patient to the right, you know, treatment faster, like you're provisioning clinical care more efficiently. And so, um, so I am very compelled. This is what drives me day in and day out to work as hard as I do in building genome medical is because I really believe in that, bringing forward the standard of care and genetics to patients everywhere. And I believe that results in what, what other like exogenous factors do you find is preventing this type of care to be put into the system? Uh, well, so anytime in healthcare you're driving change and innovation, it you know it moves at it's sort of a um, methodical pace, let's just say. And so I think the the biggest challenge is that gap in clinical knowledge. There's actually been a lot of investment in the molecular diagnostics. So, you know, getting the tests that are, you know, grounded in strong medicine and science out in uh, available. And we now have 600 labs providing 60,000 different genomic tests. So that part of the ecosystem has been solved. And the reason I founded Genome Medical four years ago is that it's that kind of a last mile problem. It's the, we have the medicine, we have the science, we have the technology, we're just not getting it into the hands of every patient and every clinician, even though there's a standard of care in place, there's medical management guidelines in place, and there's reimbursement coverage in place. So people who are eligible according to their healthcare plan are not getting the treatment that they should be. Um, and that is the problem wow. that we are tackling. Wow. Is it covered by like Medicare or? Uh, yeah, and so it can vary a little bit between Medicare and commercial insurance. For Medicare, they don't um, reimburse for predisposition screening. So that's what I was talking about earlier where, you know, yeah. let's say you have a strong family history of cancer in, you know, in your family. And in particular, people diagnosed at a young, younger age, like under the age of 50, is often indicative of that being a hereditary cancer. Yeah. And so Medicare does not cover for predisposition screening, it, meaning if you don't have cancer, but you're at risk because yeah. of your family. They do cover for uh, testing as a cancer patient, and they do cover for testing in other areas, particularly pediatric, genetics, and other, other areas where, where testing can be really important to get to yeah. the right diagnosis and then the right treatment. So I don't have a medical background, so I, I might be somebody that's just stupid trying to say my uh, provide my philosophy on this podcast but um my my philosophy is that we don't really know the true answer of whether uh, how we're getting these certain uh, these conditions um that's just my philosophy i might be wrong um but in many cases i feel like some many times when things are diagnosed as hereditary it's not really hereditary like it's it's it, it could be fixed you know through other means like you know, diet and exercise and um, maybe just having an overall better, better health. Um, but, you know, I may be wrong. I mean, there's certain hereditary, um, there, there's certain examples where hereditary uh, reasons are, are why people get certain ailments. But anyways, 
So let me explain that just a little bit. So there are some conditions that are multifactorial, right? Like yeah. your genetics may play a role, but it's hard to know how much of a role it's playing yeah. relative to other factors. And then there are conditions um, in particular in genetics that are called monogenic conditions. And that means that there is a particular gene that has been shown to put you at a significantly elevated risk. And it's not the presence of the gene, it's the presence of a variant in the gene. And so those monogenic conditions um, that are high penetrant means that you're very likely to manifest that disease. Now, so for example, let's take a fairly well-known gene that has been in media, uh, the BRCA gene, BRCA1 and BRCA2. And this puts you at an elevated risk of hereditary breast and ovarian cancer. And so for somebody with, depending upon the variant, you may have like an 80% lifetime risk of getting breast cancer. That wow. does not mean you definitively will, but that is a very high risk. Now, the reason that it's a high risk is that you have a gene that is not functioning properly. It is not carrying out the cellular function. And yeah. as such, something that is implicated like BRCA in DNA repair, it means that as you know, your cells replicate and divide, like there's errors and those errors can ultimately manifest into cancer in, yeah. in particular if that BRCA gene is not functioning in the way that it should. So there is sort of a underpinning uh, biological rationale that puts you at this much more elevated risk, but that, you know, is not the case with all disease. That is only the case, you know, in particular known genetic conditions. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um... And epidemiology is so such a difficult like subject to to pin down. <laughs> you know, there's so many studies and so many um, arguments that are made uh, in support of or against specific you know reasons why people get diseases. So um, it's such a hotly debated um, area. You know. Well, I can share a few more stats just on, you yeah. know, kind of the prevalence of genetic uh, disease sure. or conditions. So sure. roughly one out of 10 people actually has a genetic condition. Right. And the vast majority of that is either undiagnosed or misdiagnosed. So mm. That's 10% of the population. Wow. Uh, approximately two and a half percent of all births have a resulting complication from genetics. And sometimes that is very severe with, you know, the infant right. in the NICU that requires rapid diagnosis uh, to be able to care for that child. Right. Um, and those are often, you know, clearly lifelong conditions that one is, uh, you know, one is what is now treating. Um, as we sort of expand from that, um, it's been shown that about 17% of the population has a moderate risk, you know, variant that might ch change their clinical care over their lifetime. And that's where the opportunity for a lot of broader based screening over time will allow us to, you know, better treat people according so, to their needs. So can you, can you um, test uh, specific genetics of an individual and then make recommendations for treatment or recommendations yeah. for lifestyle changes based on their genetics? 
That is exactly what Genome Medical does. So we yeah. are a medical practice in all 50 states, and we will provide access to our clinical team. Those are medical geneticists, genetic counselors, um, actually pharmacists, as well as some primary care doctors. And basically the patient journey kind of looks like this. They get referred either by a provider or self-refer. Anybody can go to Genome Medical and uh, schedule an online appointment. We take insurance, we also take patient pay. Uh, but effectively, you'll have a consultation. We will walk through a bit of your personal and family health history to help determine whether or not testing would be medically indicated and covered by insurance, or whether um, you know, you're just interested and want to pursue it on your own, in which case you pay for it out of pocket. Uh, we then select the right test. And again, out of 60,000 tests, knowing what to test is a challenge. We get the results back, we share those results with you, and then we develop a personalized care plan for you. I love that. And yeah. then we, we share it with uh, other treating physicians that, that uh, you, you suggest. And this can be from you know, a symptomatic individual trying to get to the right diagnosis and the right treatment to the generally healthy population. Like it is really applicable to everyone. Do you feel like the general healthy population doesn't necessarily, you, you don't see them as, as often as you would see like a more sick person? Or do you feel... So the majority of our business is really where uh, there would there would be a medical indication for needing yeah. testing, either not that you're sick, but that you have a history of a hereditary condition in the family, or you are, you know, seeking a diagnosis, like you've got ailments and you're yeah. trying to figure out what's going on, or we're navigating you to the right choice of therapy. So you really use it in all three of those. It's the predisposition, you're asymptomatic, but you're worried about things for the future, or you are symptomatic and we're getting you diagnosed, or you actually have a diagnosis and we're now trying to figure out the right treatment. I feel like them. people need to be more proactive with their health. I feel like they're not, you know, including myself. Like, um, so like somebody listening to this podcast, like what would you recommend to them regarding just being proactive? Um, so one, I recommend you go to Genome Medical and get your appointment. <laughs> but no, beyond that, I think there's, I think there, there is this broader aspect of more and more individuals taking control of their health. And in particular, in this era of pandemic times, yeah. um, you know, yeah. a lot of people are not getting their routine clinical care, clearly. And yeah. part of the, what worries me is that, you know, that means you're not coming in for that colonoscopy or your mammogram right. or, you know, regular routine screenings. And unfortunately, my concern is that that means that there's going to be a future wave where we start to get to diagnoses at a later stage, which then makes it just more challenging to treat. So there is a measure you could take today, particularly, yeah. again, if there's a history, mostly it's as an adult, if you're a you know, presumably healthy individual, then your highest risk are a lot of these adult onset conditions, which are cancer, cardiovascular disease, neurological kind of degenerative diseases, uh, and those you can test for. And so the value of having that information is that you can actually unlock better clinical care. Right. So it's not so much that like you get information, and you have nothing to do with it. It's more of you get this information and now you're going to get a higher quality of treatment. If you do it early on, um, do you think doctors would be receptive to receiving kind of the reports of 
you know. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And particularly because we are not, um, we're distinct from a lot of the at-home testing, you know, like the direct-to-consumer. This is a medical practice. And so it's sort of like if your primary care doctor referred you to see a cardiologist, that cardiologist shares their clinic notes back to your treating primary care doctor. We're the same. So we share those clinic notes. And as specialists in the field of genetics and genomics, like any primary care doctor is going to look at that and say, well, this is a very knowledgeable expert, I uh, see and understand. And we make ourselves available to those treating physicians so we can help close that knowledge gap. And it's actually one of the important factors I like about our business because it has this magnifying education effect, not just for the patient, but frankly, for the treating physician. And so that helps to accelerate this understanding of how you use genetics and genomics and um, ultimately elevate the whole field. So how would you implement, like, what would you recommend? How would you implement this into medical schools? And because um, it's, it's absolutely necessary to do this. Uh, like, like I said earlier, 106,000 deaths uh, uh, happen because of properly prescribed medications. <laughs> so, you know, how do we how do we do that? Because we can save a lot of lives if if we implement this institutionally, right? Yeah. So certainly, um, medical schools are increasing the amount of genetics knowledge and education. Um, I would argue we need to do more there still. Uh, but you know, the average clinician will have been trained. 20 years ago and probably had a semester <laughs> related to genetics. And so as this moves more into kind of a critical component of how you practice medicine, certainly starting with the new generation of medical doctors being trained and educated is great, but we also have to bring this knowledge out to the you know entire kind of clinical uh, team, if you will. And, and so it's, it's that, that that we really focus on. And, you know, we've talked a, a little bit about um, this drug to gene interactions. That's, that's, a, that's a category that's called pharmacogenomics. And about 80% of the population actually has genetic markers that would affect their response to medication. So when some people respond well and other people suffer from a bad reaction, uh, genetics can, can help explain why. And so that's an opportunity that yeah. touches in on this so notion of how to- you know, If somebody does have a, a reaction, a negative reaction, or, you know, do, do you find that the, the genetic component of like finding out how, why they got that reaction is kind of goes by the wayside you know, it doesn't really get addressed. It doesn't really get addressed all that often. It's just like they, they get a negative reaction. The doctor just says, "Oh, you know, we should probably just give you a different medication as opposed to this one," and they don't really inquire about their their genetics. Uh, you know, that's interesting. So, you know, certainly I think if a drug is either ineffective, and that's actually another big area of opportunity for cost savings, because a lot of people are actually on drugs that have no efficacy. Of course, an adverse drug response is even worse, but even an ineffective drug is not great, right? Because you may have more modest side effects that are just not as obvious as a significant adverse drug response. But 
in general, um, you know, I mean, one, there's the cost of putting people on drugs that are ineffective, but two, there, you know, there's sort of the longer term potential effect. So, you know, if you could wave your magic wand and immediately have all drugs sort of in a category that has, uh, you know, kind of deeper understanding, that, that's, that would be fantastic. But to your earlier point, genetics is a factor it is not necessarily the only thing that is uh that is you know going to going to um help predict that response but clearly having more information is better and will in fact we're already seeing most new drugs under development today have a biomarker component meaning we will be demonstrating efficacy in a cohort of the population with a specific biomarker that shows higher efficacy, in which case in the future for prescribing, you would actually look to make sure that that biomarker is present before you are administering the drug, which will improve the outcomes. Do you feel like we're, we're uh, not as knowledgeable about all the biomarkers that are, I mean, obviously we need to keep learning regarding you know the human uh, physiology and anatomy, but do you feel like there's there's a lot that we still have to learn regarding? Oh, for sure, yeah. for sure. I think I mean we've come so far in let's say the last decade, yeah. but I you know the pace of discovery is actually only accelerating still, right? And that. so I think of it a little bit like you know, a really massive jigsaw puzzle, right? And, you know, the human genome is a very massive jigsaw puzzle. We don't know a lot of where all those, you know, pieces would go effectively. And so, but what happens is as you learn more, it, you know, kind of like in a puzzle, when you're putting more of the pieces in place, like that, it actually accelerates the pace. It goes faster because you have this underlying kind of knowledge you're building upon. And so that's sort of my layman's way to describe, you know, the the, the pace yeah. of this genetic discovery because, you know, you, you, you have building blocks, you have a foundation from which you're building. So it seems like you have a scientific background. But I actually do not. No, do not. Um, but I've been in the field of genetics and genomics for like 20 years now. Yeah. So I was not kind of by a clinician and I'm not a scientist. I'm, I'm actually a business person, uh, but I'm so passionate about the field that I yeah. read and I am a lifelong learner and I'm surrounded by, you know, some of the world's top geneticists and genetic counselors. And so I learn a bit vicariously, but um, no, you're also a very smart person. I can tell. Um, you went to Harvard Business School. I did. Yes. Harvard Business. How did you like that? I loved it. It was fantastic. You know, it was just such a fun experience, and partly um, uh, at Harvard Business School, you always you work for a number of years. You know, from undergrad to to going, and I think they may have may have modified that a little bit. But it was super fun because you know at the time in college, I was kind of honestly like ready to be done with school, to be quite candid. And so you know, I, was, I had fun, but I, I kind of just wanted to wrap it up. <laughs> and then after working for a few years and going back to Harvard Business School, you know, I was like, wow, this is really fun. Like I get to just you know, study and learn and be surrounded by these amazing people. And Harvard Business School has this um, case study method of teaching, which is really quite cool because, you know, it's, it's frankly teaching a style of decision making by studying lots and lots and lots of different cases. And over time, you kind of build this pattern recognition. So even though it hasn't been your direct experience, you've kind of learned in this more accelerated yeah. method so yeah 
understanding pattern recognitions is definitely helpful. Like, so what were things that you noticed regarding, you know, successful businesses that you studied? Well, so um, a lot of that is around kind of like, how do you build a competitive advantage and how do you think strategically about, um, you know, sort of building a moat, if you will, right? So if, uh, you know, if you're building your business, how do you, how do you kind of layer into the ecosystem and how do you, you know, build strengths and sort of seek opportunities in the market? And frankly, in light of significant market change uh, with COVID, I feel like I draw on some of those decision-making frameworks and just thinking about like being really adaptable and, you know, what's changing in the ecosystem and how do I need to adjust to better serve patients' needs and providers' needs? Because it's a different world today than it was three months ago and it will be in three months forward. And so I think the more one can be adaptive, particularly as an entrepreneur, uh, you know, the more you're set up for um, yeah. success. So. Yeah, 100%. No worries. Um, yeah, you know, the, I think the biggest mistake, I, I mean, if I got a Harvard education, uh, business education, I probably would have not made as many mistakes as I've, as I've made. Um, but well, we all make mistakes. <laughs> you're, well, that's well, how we learn. <laughs> yeah, but not as many. I would have made as many mistakes. You know, if I, if I understood that, like, and I understood, like, the pattern recognition of what makes people successful, I probably wouldn't have gone the path I went down. But one of the biggest mistakes I think people make is that they become too romantic about how they're going to commercialize. Oh, that's and, and, yeah. and they go the they go the in the in the wrong direction for way too long because they think in their mind this is how it has to be. Yeah. And that's because of that, it actually hurts them long term. That is uh, interesting. I think there is sort of this unique aspect of um, how do you think about taking products and services to market, and particularly where you're being innovative, right? Yeah. Because especially if you're building a market, you know, like that can be quite challenging. Um, I learned early. So I was in, um, hearing is hard. <laughs> so. Well, actually I say the after business school and before I got into genetics and genomics, I worked in technology and there was the first technology incubator was a, was a company called idea lab. And I learned, uh, from, you know, the, the head, the head of idea lab, which is a, a, a individual named Bill Gross, but he had this really wonderful philosophy that I love which was, frankly, it's like, how do you build those iterative cycles of, you know, rapid learning from the market as quickly as possible? And this was kind of in the era of, frankly, the dot-com boom, right? Yeah. So you were, you know, it was like, hey, do we think we can sell cars online? Do we think we can sell dog food online? But there was something about that strategy and philosophy that has stuck with me, which is like the faster you can build that customer feedback cycle, the yeah. better. Yeah. Um, and how do you, how do you make that happen quickly? Yeah. yeah so, so I don't know if you know this, but um, we do like a, a, a life science venture conference. Uh, and uh, so some of the, a lot of the people that were pitching their their company i would say out of we had like 13 presenters and i would say probably around eight or nine were ivy league graduates <clears throat> and uh with scientific backgrounds oh wow and what i found was that a lot of them with scientific backgrounds were way too romantic about how they they want to commercialize mm -hmm. like they had these ideas of how they're going to get into the market 
and it just didn't make any sense to any savvy mm-hmm. business person. Mm-hmm. So that's what that's one thing I've noticed. Uh, and uh, but 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 then again, there's there's been some really really uh, sophisticated uh, business people that have pitched as well. Um, but it, it goes to show you that you know just because you're an int- extremely intelligent person doesn't mean like you you can commercialize the right way, you know. Um, that's what I. It is a unique skill set, and I, you know it's hard to know what that perfect magic formula is. But often for people, you know, thinking about intra- entrepreneurship, there's a couple of elements that I would hold as, in my mind, pretty critical. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one, you have to be willing to be a, a change agent and comfortable with change. And inherently, like the vast majority of the population, I would say actually does not like change, right? Like that is just a underlying challenging factor for many. And so I think you fundamentally have to have to be okay with change. Uh, and then there's sort of this adaptability piece that I mentioned. It's a little bit of like ability to read the market, but also, uh, you know, moving quickly and being adaptable. And then frankly, I think you've got to have a pretty good iron gut because, you know, there, there's going to be highs, there's going to be lows. You have to be willing to kind of, uh, you know, endure through that and have um, confidence and stamina uh, and perseverance to sort of fight the way through. Because, you know, there, there, it's never going to just be perfectly simple and seamless like it's just not i just feel like the toughest people on the planet are either people that were in the military or people that run a business (laughs) i I don't think i could do military so i'm glad i'm in the the business world (laughs) yeah perhaps maybe people in politics i just i oh man i would never be in politics it's just a, a horrible like industry from it for me i think there are different skills needed in that profession uh than in the entrepreneurial profession and entrepreneurial i feel like being super direct and just kind of cutting through you know lots of fast is also needed and that's a not necessarily direct correlation in politics True. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. For, for for whatever reason, because you're you're trying to appeal to so many people at the same time. I think that's it. it. You're, yeah. You know, you're trying to appeal to so many people that it's like, well, I ha- I should say this thing. And but then it could offend these other people, or, you know. Yeah, that's, that's right. Why, that's, that's why there's a lot delicate. of beating around the bush. But I suppose like in companies as like founders or CEOs, don't if you have like an eclectic group of people that you work with, doesn't that still correlate? you know, you, you have to say the right things and not really. I mean, I think of it as if you are a mission driven organization and genome medical very much is, then you are inherently recruiting and bringing people together to accomplish that mission. And that is a unifying force. And so you frankly don't invite people into the party that are not unified with that force and that vision and that mission. And so though you may have obviously disagreement on certain you know, strategies or, you know, whatever it may be, or priorities. Uh, But as long as you're kind of all approaching it from this unified, we care about advancing this mission, then you have people that are bringing their insights, their knowledge, their experience to bear on that. And you get to a better place because even though you may have disagreement, like as long as you're bringing data and you're bringing informed experiences, like you're ultimately going to get to the right decision. And so I think, um, 
I view that as a much stronger unifying factor. Got it. What, what, what made you, what was impetus that motivated you to start this company? Uh, truly, a lot of friends and family members have been affected by, um, you know, I, I, disease, I right? And yeah. uh, I tend to be a pretty compassionate uh, individual. And as I learned more about genetics and genomics, kind of right around the year 2000, when we were sequencing the first human genome, I um, quite fortunately got introduced to Randy Scott, who at the time was the CEO of Genomic Health. Um, and this was one of the first precision medicine companies. And I just became really excited about the potential, even back then, which was very in the early days, to be able to, again, not approach medicine in kind of this trial and error approach that we've talked about, where it's truly, it, there's an art you know, component yeah. to it, uh, rather than kind of grounded deep in science. And, um, you know, as, as I've had more family members, you know, diagnosed with cancer, uh, I've had friends who've had children born with really rare genetic conditions. Um, you know, it, it's just, it's a, it's a challenge. And so I, that has been my motivating factor that really powers me to want to bring this, you know, Love science, that. genetics and genomics into clinical care today to affect this generation, not a future generation. I mean, it for sure will help future generations, but it should be helping, you know, patients today. Yeah, definitely. hundred percent. How prolific do you think this will be in the future? Like how, how let me put it a different way. How, uh, how much time do you think it will take? Do you think it will take to get to the point where this is everywhere? This is ubiquitous. Um, It'll be in our lifetime. Um, I think the, uh, truly, I think it's not that far off. We are seeing this rapid acceleration where, you know, the future of every cancer patient getting both somatic testing, that's testing of the tumor, as well as uh, germline genetic testing, the DNA you inherit from your parents, is becoming a reality. Uh, we've marched over the last five years from very limited use to much, you know, much greater use today. And so I think, you know, that is in line of sight, like within the next five years. Uh, I think the idea that virtually everybody as part of routine medical care gets some form of testing first at birth and then second kind of at adulthood um, feels to me like, you know, within a 10 to 15 year horizon uh, mm -hmm. could be a little longer, but I, you know, yeah. I think the science is already there. And so we know that's the future of where it's headed. I think it's just a question of under what pace. Yeah. I think more people need to know about it, that this is possible for them. You know, I don't think that they know, especially people that have experienced, uh, you know, family members that had adverse effects due to certain medications. That's right. Again, they don't know. They don't know that they can go and, and uh, look at their genetics and figure out what the best treatments are. So that's right. virtually everyone who has pharmacogenomic testing will have some drugs that would be contraindicated 
or where you would want to look at uh, your genetics for appropriate dosing, either hypersensitivity or hyposensitivity. Now, you may not be on that drug today, but that's part of the value because then you know, you know, either you shouldn't be prescribed the drug in the future, or if you are, you need to, you know, make sure that you're taking those those factors into consideration. Do you mind if I ask you uh, how how large is your business and when did you see an inflection point in your business where you started growing? Yeah, so the company was founded about four years ago. Um, we have now raised about 60 million in capital from wow. some okay. venture capital firms as well as uh, strategic. So we represent, we have some of the uh, some health plans and health systems and technology partners um, as investors in Genome Medical. And part of that is because we are, we we can we have the potential to really help elevate the field in advanced genomics and so as part of that i like to think of us as kind of you know a good citizen in the ecosystem overall we're actually beneficial for the health plan because we can eliminate waste and under you know inappropriate utilization we're beneficial for health systems because we solve these service delivery challenges we're beneficial for patients because we're getting them to the right drug faster and the right treatment and the right diagnosis, um, you know, and ultimately that advances the field of medicine and helps us to deliver clinical care more cost effectively, which we all know we need. Um, so in terms of an inflection point, we're kind of in it. Uh, we are accelerating rapid growth and actually with uh, you know, with with uh, the recent surge to everything headed to telehealth, we have been, you know, trying to be a great partner with health systems and hospitals to move, you know, genetics and genomics into telehealth. Um, and so that, you know, we sit squarely between telehealth and genomics, those two major healthcare trends. Uh, and now we want to, we're actually working really rapidly in advancing uh, kind of a patient education and care navigation technology platform so that we can help to triage the patients that need to come back into clinical care yeah. Yeah. Uh, and help them get to the, the right treatment. What, what, what do you think has been the um, main factor in you getting the funding that you got? Uh, you know, it's always a combination. I think when you're a really early company, a big part of that relies on the team. And I have two incredible co-founders, um, Dr. Robert Green, who's a medical geneticist at Harvard Medical School, and Dr. Randy Scott, who is you know, known as a leader in the field of precision medicine. Um, and then I've helped found, you know, companies previously that have had tremendous outcomes. And so I, you know, I think that the team was a cornerstone and I always really believe in just great talent beginning other great talent. And so that's helped us to attract an incredible clinical team. Um, and then we've had some really tremendous progress uh, very rapidly. So we service, you know, major health systems, major health plans. Uh, we are in-network provider with a number of the national uh, health plans, um, you know, and so as part of that, I think we've just demonstrated uh, fast traction that is always a positive sign. Would you recommend partnerships to people or because a lot of people are uh, would not be um, motivated by a partnership, they would they would probably want to just start do do their own thing and and keep most of the company. But do do you feel that's a wrong mindset? 
for most people? Yeah, I, I am a big believer in uh, connecting oneself, particularly as an early stage startup company, into the ecosystem and trying to partner with, frankly, much bigger and larger companies uh, and having run businesses that are direct to consumer. It takes a lot of capital to really build a brand in today's era. And so, you know, if you're really trying to bring consumers to you directly, like that's a very costly endeavor. And so we are more of a B2B play right. where we work with hospitals, we work with health systems, we work with large provider groups, we work with health plans, you know, and we, we use those avenues to reach the right. consumer. Uh, and certainly we do have probably about 10 to 15% of our patients just self-refer. They come to Genome Medical directly and most health plans allow you to self-refer to specialists. And so that's effectively what we are is we're a specialist. How did you attract these uh, co-founders? Because they, they seem like they have extensive experience and knowledge in the space that you, you were trying to get into. How did you attract them? Did you just approach them? Did you go to your school and... Like, <laughs> it's a great question. So Randy Scott, I've had the pleasure of working with Randy now across yeah. two decades. So he was the CEO of Genomic Health, which was this early precision medicine company that I was involved with. And then he founded or was one of the founders at Invite, which is a large uh, genetic testing company. And we worked together again in that capacity. So it was sort of a natural um, yeah, yeah. progression over 20 years of relationship building. Uh, and then Robert Green served, Dr. Green served on um, the scientific advisory board at Invite. And so I came to know him through that journey and uh, right. so that also uh, became a, a, a great partner. Yeah. yeah, you're working with people. You guys are changing the world pretty much. We are, you know, that is my passion. I, as I, I hit maybe, maybe it was somewhere in my mid thirties, I kind of had this realization, or maybe it was even my young, it was more like my young thirties. I had sort of this realization that, wow, as an entrepreneur, you work hard. Like I put in lots of, you know, time and it's partly because it's so motivated and driven by what I do, but I would rather be doing, you know, good for the world in trying to invest. And so I, I sort of almost look at it a little bit like I have the knowledge, I have the capacity, I have you know, like kind of this, this mandate almost to feel like I need to be working on real world problems and problems that are going to not only have sort of short term, you know, benefit, but like long term enduring. Like you're, you're gonna, you're gonna be able to leave a legacy too. you know, if this endures past, you know, for sure, for sure. And you know, part of it is it really is the patient stories that motivate me. I mean, every time we get together as a company, we do a patient story. And that just brings to light the importance of the work we do every day. And it really is motivating. Yeah, definitely. I can see that. Um, so, okay. I just want to ask you, you know, one, one last question. Um, oh, maybe a few more questions, but uh, regarding getting funding, do you feel having a Harvard education really contributed a lot to uh, getting funding? Because I feel like Ivy League graduates normally get 
funding more easily, more readily? You know, it's a good question. Uh, you know, I'm sure there's probably been studies shown and, and on that factor. I would say it is valuable in the following regard. One, the network. Like I threw my alumni and even just my classmates, my section mates, like it kind of gives you a little bit of a leg up because I know people at so many of the, yeah. you know, top firms that even if it's not the right person, like I can kind of get introduced. So it does create a little bit of a door opener, which I would say is advantageous. I think there was probably 10, 15 years ago, a little more, um, I don't know, uh, value <laughs> placed on sort of that unique Ivy League MBA. And now I feel like, I mean, maybe there's still a bit of that. And maybe it's just because I'm now, you know, a number a number of years out uh, that I, it feels like the experiences and my more recent uh, work experiences are probably a stronger yeah. contributing factor. But you know, it's hard to know. I mean, certainly it's an advantage, uh, um, but I, I wouldn't, it's not a necessary, I mean, it's it's not a necessary condition and it's certainly an insufficient condition. So in other words, you're not going to get funded simply yeah, because yeah, you had, yeah. uh, but it, it, it helps. helps you. I mean, there, there is a factor of like, when you go to an Ivy League and people know you graduated from the school, there's an, there's a factor of instant credibility that you're, you're given. Um, and certainly, I think in your first five, 10 years of, you know, post, I think it does give, it does project you further in your career faster, would be my decision to get an Ivy League education for you, for you. <laughs> I think so. So it was a good, it was a good decision on your part. Oh, I, you know, I definitely, and partly I've got lifelong friendships that have resulted from it as well. And so, you know, I think um, for me, I loved more than anything, you know, I mean, certainly the, the social experiences were great, but also it was, it was kind of the mindset of how to take really complex decision-making and kind of break that down into problems that feel more solvable. Um, and so it, yeah, it kind of built, it built a comfort with some of those complex decisions. So, uh, so quick question, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, if somebody wants to uh, use your service, how would they do so if they're listening to this podcast? Thank you. Yes, you can go directly to our website. It's uh, genomemedical.com. Um, and, you know, you can always reach me directly. I'm Lisa at genomemedical.com. You can follow me on Twitter, uh, Lisa A, uh, and on LinkedIn. So that's the best. Awesome. Uh, Thank you.